Drop your cocks and grab your socks, folks. But I don't have a cock. Well, I don't have any socks. It's your old chuckle buddy. Guess who? Jonathan and James Ramcharan. Reporting live for duty on this magnificent June 24th in the year of our Lord, 2020. Welcome and bienvenue to Jonathan Ramcharan, the podcast. How you doing, folks? Glad to be here with you. Uh, if you're new to the show, Jonathan Ramtran, the podcast, this is a show where I bitch, whine, bellyache, squawk, beak, and kibitz about myself in order to relate to y'all self, y'all the dear listener, y'all the dear viewer, shared experiences, kindred souls, BFFs forever, best friends forever for that matter. You know, if you're too stupid to know what a fucking acronym is, BFF, where you've been living under a rock. Anyways, folks, you know, uh, a lot of things going on in the world of JR the P. Jonathan Ramtran, the podcast, Um, you know, so let's dive right in, you know. If you are new to the show, I am an actor extraordinaire, 19 years of service, diploma in theater arts. Thespian to the bone, ladies and gentlemen, and damn proud of it, you know. Uh, You know, pandemic 2020, a lot of people have time to reflect Probably like they never have before, you know. Things are looking positive, you know. A lot of businesses, cities, states, countries, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know, looking to reopen, you know. There's been a downward tick in regards to the numbers of, you know, COVID-19 cases here in Toronto, Canada, where I hail from. And, uh, you know, that's a lot of positive uh, reinforcement in terms of, like, the economy, the job market. And as an actor, thespian extraordinaire, I've had a lot of time to think and reflect on my uh, career and um, making some steps forward. Uh, I have recently begun penning... Uh, penning, producing, and to be performed by a production by yours truly, myself, Jonathan Ramtran of Jonathan Ramtran the Podcast. I've been penning a project that I uh, intend to perform upon myself, produced by and, you know, performed. <laughs> it's a fucking tongue twister, right? Do you sell seashells by the seashore? Do you sell seashells by the seashore? I don't fucking know. I've never even seen a seashore. Or have I? Well, once I took a cruise, pre-COVID-19. But uh, anyway, you know, yeah, this little project that I've been putting together, I'm very excited for it. And um, that's coming down the pipe here at JR the P, Jonathan Ramchand, the podcast. If all goes well, I'll hopefully have something to show you quite soon, within the not-so-distant future. So that feels good, you know what I mean? Like, uh... That means that, you know, the wheels are turning, you know, progress, slowly, steady, you know, come see, come saw, whatever, it's happening, right? So, you know, I'm very proud and excited about that, you know, so fucking, I'm so excited I can't contain my sweat. (laughs) Sweating. You know, so very excited and proud about that. 
And, you know, a lot of that, too, has come to a change in my outlook, which I think is relatable across industry, you know? One thing in the performing arts is there has always been an overwhelming sense of the, the romanticism of the starving artist, you know? Oh, you know, he, he slept on the couch. He slept in the back of a, you know, in the back of a minivan as he, you know, was out on the grind trying to make his way in show business. She was washing dishes at a cafe when, you know, she was down and out and broke. And then by a chance of fucking random luck, some producer, some agent saw her sing in a dusty, beaten down jukebox bar. Like, give me a fucking break. Does that make any sense? This is an industry like any industry. What business model is like, okay, cross your fingers, sleep in a ditch, and hope for your best. It's, it's a romanticized notion, right? The starving artist. And I think the story there, the takeaway there is, you know, audience craves authenticity. Undoubtedly, you know, we, we seek an authenticity from our friends, from our family, from our, um, you know, elected representatives, from our teachers, from our law enforcement uh, agents, things of that matter, right? Authenticity. So it's no different in the world of performing. Audience seek an authenticity, but the business model of being a starving artist, sleeping in a fucking ditch, just so you can tap dance on a stage and be considered worthy, you know, it's it's kind of boneheaded. And, you know, I've lived it. I've, I've lived in men's shelters. You know, I've been broke down and out, you know, drinking, smoking around the clock, you know, drinking, smoking, straight east, west coasting, you know. And, you know, I guess I too was searching for that authenticity, that meaning in what I do. But, you know, it's been a long time coming, a lot of... Um, positivity, a lot of self-improvement, a lot of baby steps, you know. We are like two plus years into the podcast, JR the P, you know, and through it all and up until this point, pandemic 2020, the thing that I've really come away with is the idea of, you know, authenticity, hard work, and hopefulness authenticity hard work and hopefulness you know that pretty much sums up my viewpoint and that's relatable across industry during pandemic you know you got to be authentic you got to be hard working and you got to be hopeful and i hope i didn't jumble those words you know just speaking from the heart there you have it folks jonathan ramtran actor extraordinaire I am also a stand-up comedian extraordinaire. 11 plus years of service, you know, 2020. 
looking down the lane, looking down the road. And, uh, you know, same deal. Uh, Authenticity, hard work, and hopefulness. That's major. But another idea that um, I've recently come away with during this time is um, gifts. That came out a little weird. Gifts. You know, not gifts. You know, like those little weird little animated little things that you send your friends on your Facebook. I'm talking about gifts. G-I-F-T-S. Not G-I-F, you fucking high schooler. Grow the fuck up. I'm talking about gifts. And that's relatable across industry, you know, across industry. Um, We all have gifts, certain talents that we're born with, you know. You know, I guess as a performer, it's the the gift of entertainment to want to be humorous, to want to showcase a story. Whether you're a musician, you know, you have an ear for music, a talent for music. You know, you're a business person, you're entrepreneurial, you're hardworking. Um, let's say you're a teacher, you know, you have a certain relatability that allows you to relate to another human being in order to share information. You know, you're a teacher. So we all have, we all have these gifts, right? And I got thinking about that as a comedian during this time of pandemic because it's like, you know, shows are obviously... Actually, on the on the uptick, a lot of people are getting back to work in comedy. I not being one of them. <laughs> but hey, my time will come. But, you know, a lot of comics are back at work, uh, which is cool. And during this time of pandemic, it, it has been a blessing for a lot of us to reshape our values in our career, um, to get back to the basics, you know, the fundamental rudimentary blocks the rudiments of what we do, but also to like, you know, really consider what our strengths are, you know? And for me, like, I can date it back to like um, early childhood, you know? Watching the Flintstones, uh, watching the Muppets, you know, Ren and Stimpy, you know, just that, that gift of humor and how important it has been in my life. And this really reminded me of that. So the other day, you know, I'm slumped. I'm slumped on a park bench, right? I'm reading a Garfield comic. (laughs) You know, Garfield the cat? You know, he's one of my oldest, dearest friends. Garfield. I've been reading that motherfucker since like 1991, 1990. I don't know. You know, I was a kid. I love Garfield. So, and you know, Garfield, he's in the 21st century, man. Like uh, Jim Davis, the creator. The the cartoon is still in syndication. It's still in production, right? Garfield in the 21st century. He's sending dick pics, selfies, you know. He's, uh, you know, he's on the laptop, you know. He's on fucking Facebook. He's kicking Odie off of tables. He's slapping John around. He's eating lasagna by the fucking pounds, you know. Fat as ever. Garfield. He's too much sometimes. So I'm slumped on a I'm slumped on a park bench. I'm reading the latest edition of Garfield. <laughs> the volume is called Garfield Belly Laughs. <laughs> Garfield Belly Laughs. And on the front cover, there's a picture of like Odie, you know, his little buddy, Odie the dog, Odie and Garfield. And they have like a Sharpie 
and they drew like a smiley face. They drew like a smiley face on their bellies. And it's called Garfield. Belly laughs. <laughs> Fucking Garfield's too much, man. So anyways, in this one strip I'm reading, right? John Arbuckle. John Arbuckle. You know uh, Garfield's owner? If you're familiar with the strip, the comic strip. John Arbuckle is Garfield's owner. So in this particular comic strip, right? It starts off like this. John has his back turned to Garfield. And he's giving him cut eye, right? Garfield has his back turned to John. He's giving him cut eye. Then gradually they look at each other. Why are we fighting, Garfield? I don't know why we're fighting, John. Let's forget about it. I love you, Garfield. I love you, John. And they go to hug. But as John's hugging Garfield, you know, he's hugging Garfield, he starts patting his back. <laughs> he's patting Garfield's back. Garfield looks at the audience. The next frame, John is fucking tore up. His hair's ripped out. He's got scratches all over his face. He's got a black eye. You know, shirt's ripped to shreds. You know, he's in a, he's in a disheveled heap. You know? Garfield almost murders his owner for patting him on the back. <laughs> That's a fucking cat for you, right? And I understand that sentiment, you know? It's like, fuck off with your hugs. Get out of here with your hugs, right? Don't fucking hug me, you know? <laughs> fuck on with your hugs, you know? Garfield, he's too much. So, you know, uh, it was just a nice reminder of childhood and, um, you know, how deep and long this quest for humor has been in me, right? It's just like, damn. It's back to the fucking drawing board. I remember being a fucking, you know, a little fucking four or five-year-old kid just sitting there reading the Garfield comics, you know, Sunday morning. Where's my Garfield? You know, you go get the Sunday newspaper, you flip it open, you, you rush to the back to read the Garfield comic. <laughs> but, you know, as I'm sitting there, right, I can't help but notice there's this daughter and mother you know, she's like a young mother and the daughter is like, I don't know, like nine years old, right? Fairly young mother. She's got like a nine-year-old daughter. She's trying to teach the daughter how to ride a bike. And I notice them out of the corner of my eye as I'm reading my Garfield comic. I'm whatever, right? Now this nine-year-old, she's got like a real gangly, long kind of frame to her, right? Like a real athletic frame. She's like five foot eight, nine years old, you know, big bulging beady eyes, you know. Gangly fucking nine-year-old. The mother's trying to teach her how to ride a bike. But it's like earth to fucking hover parent, earth to helicopter parent, the kid knows how to ride the bike. The mother's like, teetotaling and dotting and hovering over the child, right? Trying to like hold her steady on the bike as she's riding the bike. But it's like, yo, she obviously knows how to ride the bike. Anybody could see that. She's like, she had like a real athletic kind of build to her. You know, she's got her helmet on. She's rip roaring, raring to go. But yet her mother's like hovering over her, trying to hold on to her, making sure she doesn't fall off the bike. God forbid. 
God forbid she falls into the grass, right? It's just like, whatever, right? So I'm, you know, I'm thumbing through my Garfield comic, right? <laughs> Garfield, you just do much sometimes. I'm reading my Garfield comic. All of a sudden I hear, Your handlebars are backwards! Your handlebars are backwards! Your handlebars are backwards! What? What the fuck is she bitch whining and belly aching about, right? I'm like, I put down my Garfield comic, right? You fucking idiot. I'm just trying to read my book, right? I look up. The mother, she's like, you know, a couple feet away from me. The child is like 20 feet away from the mother. So we're all will, we're all well within range. Yet the mother's screaming, Your handlebars are on backwards. Your handlebars are backwards. Jocelyn, your handlebars are backwards. So I guess I look over at Jocelyn, right? I look over and the, the girl, right? She's slumped back on her bike, you know? She's got that deadpan, you know, half eyelid open, deadpan stare. She's got that Garfield stare. She's just slumped back on her bicycle seat, staring at her mother. I, I took one look at that. I'm like, oh, the kid's goofing off. She's goofing off. She's being a stupid kid. <laughs> Just staring at her mother. Your handlebars are backwards. Jocelyn, the handlebars are backwards. It's like, obviously, she's fucking with you. And that's like the sad adultification of like the world, you know? We've all been so ad adultified where it's like, remembering that gift that spark that that inherent gift that we all have to be who we are you know what i mean it's like the kid's goofing off she's being she's being silly she obviously knows that the handlebars are twisted backwards kids do stupid things you know sometimes you mix the fucking jelly beans with the peanut butter and you eat it just to see how it tastes you know you jump on your bed you put your clothes on backwards you know you set the fucking dollhouse on fire. Like, you just do stupid shit when you're a kid just for the shit of it, right? She knew the handlebars were backwards. Sometimes when you, put your, when you twist your handlebars backwards, it gives the bicycle a different type of roll. It rolls differently, right? She's just being a kid. She's being goofy, right? Staring at her mother. <laughs> the handlebars are backwards. And it was just a nice reminder for me while I was reading my Garfield comic about how, just how, how deep these senses really go back, you know? I saw it in this little girl, you know, she's just being goofy and playful, being herself, you know? I remembered the humor and the joy that, you know, reading these Garfield comics have given me from a child up until now as a young man. And, you know... That's the power of the gift. The gifts that y'all, dear listener, y'all, dear viewer, undoubtedly have. There's, there's good things in you, you know? Um, I obviously don't vouch for everything you do. I don't know. I, hell, I don't know who the fuck you are. Maybe you're a complete diabolical douchebag. But generally speaking, we all have good qualities that we need to be reminded of from time to time. And we need to fight to cultivate hallelujah so there you have it folks jonathan ramcharan stand-up comedian extraordinaire
Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of what's going on with my world right now as a performer, as a human being, pandemic 2020. Yo. I'm going to grab a quick sip of coffee, folks. Pardon moi. Oh, that's damn good. Hmm. I've been falling back in love with, uh, well, I've always loved it, but um, uh, instant coffee, you know, <laughs> due to pandemic, you know, you don't want to set foot in a Starbucks. Oh, my God. You know, he died because he wanted to drink a vente. Oh. <laughs> you have to pour fucking vente lattes on your grave, you know. So, like, due to pandemic, obviously, you know, making coffee at home for the most part. Falling back in love with this fucking instant brew. So damn convenient, you know? You just boil a pot of coffee, boil a pot of water, dump in a couple scoops of fucking instant coffee. Ole! Tender blessings, tender mercies, folks, you know? Gotta have that gratitude. All right! All right, 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 all right. Now shake it. All right. Like a Polaroid picture. Check this. So what I want to talk to y'all folks about today is politics. You know? We live in a world where, um, you know, to be aware of the systems and the, you know, societal discussions is very advantageous, you know? Um... Sometimes it's kind of unpleasant. I mean, I'm a very peaceful person. Like, I'm a path, I'm a pacifist, dude. You know, the dude abides, dude. Like, I'm pretty, you know. Your revolution's over, Lebowski. Do you hear me, Lebowski? I suggest you do what your father did. Get a job. Do you hear me, Lebowski? Do you hear me, Lebowski? The bums will always lose, Lebowski. The bums will always lose. You're... Mr. Lebowski, man, I'm the dude, okay? I'm the dude. In a sense, you know, I'm the dude, in a sense. I don't want to bitch, whine, bellyache, squawk about every little damn thing that Congress, Parliament, you know, legislature, you know, the walls of academia. I don't want to fucking get embroiled in their fucking BS. You know, I'm just a lousy fucking rundown fucking clown for the Lord, you know what I mean? That's all I am, just a lousy, two-left-foot-stepping fucking clown for Jesus Christ, man. I'm a fucking comedian. Down-and-out fucking actor. Well, uh, on the upswing, rather, you know? You know? Hopeful for the future. Just trying to turn a lousy buck in this godforsaken economy, right? I don't want to bitch, whine, and squawk, and bellyache about this political fucking boondoggle, filibustering fucking nonsense, right? Hell, I don't know, you know? I'm just like an everyday citizen. But, you know, these are things that we have to, you know, somewhat partake in as a member of society. And um, so I'm going to speak upon politics on this episode. And, um, you know, very briefly. Well, maybe briefly, maybe not so. Hell, hell, I don't know. We're just going to get into it. Now, to begin with... um, this is no means an ideological ideology ideology. This is no by no means a debate on left versus right. You know, it's more so to the point of basic 
political concepts. And not even all concepts of political theory, but just the basic political concepts, you know, in which to spark, you know, political debate. Now, where did I get my information from? A very fetching book. This is a book, um, Philosophy, The Basics by Nigel Warburton. Um, I'll post some information on the podcast uh, channel on this episode. I'll post some information if you want to check out this book. Philosophy, The Basics by Nigel Warburton. You can get it on Amazon for like $25 Canadian. And that's chicken scratch compared to some economies, right? So Philosophy, The Basics by Nigel Warburton. And, you know, I've been reading this book and speaking on various chapters the last couple months. Um, And this chapter that we come upon is the idea of politics. Okay. So to begin with, um, this chapter on politics, it it focuses on the central political concepts of equality, democracy, freedom, punishment, and civil disobedience. Yeah, those five major concepts. Equality, democracy, freedom, punishment, and civil disobedience. Equality. People who argue for some form of equality are known as egalitarians. Ew. Motivation for achieving equality is usually a moral one. We're all equal under the eyes of God. Now, obviously, everyone is not equal. You know, abilities, height, weight, strength, gender, sexuality, those are factors. So, obviously, everyone is not equal, nor is it obvious that 100% equality is desirable. Equality, then, is in certain respects. And um, the major respects that people focus on in regards to equality on a political spectrum in society, um, when it comes to equality, the major points are money, access to employment, and political power. Now, in regards to money, equal distribution, right? Money should be equally distributed, some would argue, on the utilitarian grounds that maximizing happiness and minimizing suffering. That's like the utilitarian argument. You know, everyone should have equal money. The money should be equally distributed. Maximum happiness for the minimum suffering from a utilitarian point of view. And some of that criticism is, you know, basically different people deserve different amounts. Obviously, right? Like, let's say you have two landscapers. One's digging a ditch. The other one's raking up leaves. Obviously, it takes more physical exertion to dig a ditch versus raking up leaves. So, I guess on those grounds, shouldn't the dig-ditching douchebag get the higher pay rate? Well, hell, I don't know. That's just one concept, one idea. Um, you know, 
and you know obviously you know different people have different needs you know some people are you know employed uh some people have a wife a husband you know children some people have disabilities mental physical you know there's different needs in society people have different needs so that would then pose an argument to the the purpose of equally distributing money people have different needs and also in regards to the redistribution of money say through like taxes and such right um who who really has the right you know i guess it's democracy in a sense but who's to say they can just reach their hand in your pocket and distribute your taxes you know who gets to make those decisions you know it's easy to turn a blind eye to things and whatever whatever but it's like no it's like everyone goes to work every day you know money doesn't just uh, you know this whole economy doesn't just sort of happen there's there's ways in which it's all fundamentally connected right who gets to redistribute the money who gets to have that final say of this is how we're spending these tax dollars right and um you know those are I guess some of the basic kind of ideas around money distribution um how i feel about that um i believe that we do have a social i would say duty to care for our fellow man our fellow woman our fellow person you know in such a world full of so much opportunity and bounty there's no need that the people that are in need should suffer mercilessly but then again i don't totally agree that um we are equal in that regard in terms to money some people work harder than others some people work more than others some people take more dangerous jobs than others some people have a longer track record of proven work than others some people's quality of work is just downright better than others right so you know in regards to that that's sort of my opinion you know it's kind of shifting i i i am well aware that there are people in need but i do believe that people have a right to be well paid for their competence you know i ain't going to bitch whine squawk and belly ache about that all right equal opportunity in employment the belief that everyone should be equally accessible to employment have equal access now um there's a term that's a little bit of a hot issue reverse discrimination discrimination aka affirmative action you know reverse discrimination affirmative action um that concept is basically actively recruiting people from previously underprivileged groups The point of treating people unequally in this way is that it is intended to speed up the process of society becoming more equal. You know? Yo, give that fucking blood clot bumba clot. Give that yo, give that young blood a job, you know? He deserves to be CEO. 
goddamn peck of woods running everything, right? Gone, young blood. Happy hunting, young blood. Well, criticism of reverse discrimination, it's anti-egalitarian. You know, it's unequal, right? A supporter of reverse discrimination might reply to that. Uh, the current state of affairs is much more unfair to members of disadvantaged groups than a situation in which reverse discrimination is widely practiced. You know, the disparity is just too great. You know how in some people's mind, it's like a no brainer. Of course we need, uh, of course we need um, affirmative action. You know, the disparities are just too great, some people would argue. Well, some people criticize that. Well, it's unfair. It's unequal. Why should somebody have a, an advantage based on any reason other than uh, skill? What's love got to do, got to do with it? What's love? A second-hand emotion. What's oh, got to do with it? You know, what's love got to do with it? Fuck off, man. Step your game up or fucking drop dead and die. It's not my fucking problem. Now, however, this is debatable. If these attributes are relevant ones, then taking them into account is not really a form of discrimination, but rather an adjustment of what we take to be most important. Qualities needed for doing a particular job. Um, yeah, so... If we take into account that, you know, skill plays a major part in what is necessary in a job getting done, then it's not quite a matter of discrimination. It's about competency. That's an argument, right? Hey, it's, it's not about whether or not we want to discriminate. It's about the job getting done. Who's the best qualified? You know, also reverse discrimination may lead to resentment. Yes. However, to combat that, the standard of which certain jobs are attained can be relatively high. Yeah. So, you know, resentment can factor in. People become resentful that, you know, they're ousted from a position because they had to make way for, you know, his black ass, her white ass, you know, his Chinaman's ass or whatever. Like, oh, we have to fucking play this fucking mamby-pamby game. I'm resentful. But a way to combat that is like, well, no, we keep the standard high. The standard still remains high. Like, you know, the competency of this candidate is not the question. The question is rather, okay, well, do we promote a more diverse marketplace, job place? You know, these are all very debatable. It really comes down to, I guess, is there a quality for all in decisions made on competency? And is there room to, uh, you know, promote a more diverse workplace? That's the basic debate, I guess. It's not always easy to answer, is it? All right. In regards to equality, we now come to the idea of democracy. 
a method of giving all citizens a share in political decision-making. Yes, democracy. Now, there are different forms of democracy and how they're implemented. You know, direct democracy. Those who are eligible to vote discuss and vote on each issue rather than electing representatives. Voters would have to have a goal, sorry, voters would have to have a good grasp of issues on which they are voting. Today's democracies are representative democracies. All right. So direct democracy is like, you know, everybody basically votes on every little fucking thing. Every time there's some stupid little hiccup down at the local fucking political rama, politorama, the political store, every time parliament, congress, or whatever has some stupid little thing they want to talk about, in a direct democracy model, all citizens in that democracy would have access to go and discuss and vote on every little procedure. That's direct democracy. Everyone's involved directly. And as Nigel Warburton points out, today's world, uh, generally speaking, democracy is set up as a representative democracy. Representative democracy is basically elections are held in which voters select their favored representatives. That's why they get you down there voting, right? Elections are held in which voters select their favored representatives. These representatives then take part in the day-to-day decision-making process, which may itself be organized on some sort of democratic principles. Having frequent elections is a safeguard against abuse of office. Yeah. We elect a representative. They advocate advocate on our part, you know? They, they attend to what our wishes are, in theory. Now, criticisms of democracy is, it's an illusion. Ooh. An illusion. Voters aren't experts in the paradox of democracy, you know, like uh, capital punishment. So those are two things, really. Like, some people think that there's an illusion. Voters aren't experts. Um, I'm kind of chopping this up. Let me get to this. So the criticisms of democracy, okay, it's an illusion, you know, smoke and mirrors, you know, you know. Was Russia colluding with the U.S.? Was China colluding and involved in the 2016 electoral scandal? You know, it's like some people just think democracy is an illusion. To some extent, I believe that. I mean... I've voted before. I vote pretty much every election season. I go down to my little registered voting area in Canada, and it just seems so mamby-pamby, slapped together. You know, you're scratching your little fucking vote on a piece of paper with, like, a lead pencil so it can go through some processor. It just seems like a bunch of hogwash. But, I mean, do I really know that? I don't know. That's an argument. Democracy is an illusion. Voters aren't experts. Mm, That one's kind of stupid. I mean, that's like saying you're too dumb to think about your life. Let me run it for you. That's not really an argument. Voters aren't experts. Who gives a fuck? You know, it's. You have the right to be involved in your life, don't you think? And then there's like uh, the paradox of democracy as a criticism. The paradox of democracy. And the example they use is like capital punishment 
you know? So it's like a majority rule, right? Let's say you are against capital punishment, but you live in a democracy where we have representatives who are voted in and they carry out the, the wills and actions of the majority. Yet you're against capital punishment, right? Well, let's say the majority um, rules in favor of capital punishment. Someone is convicted of a crime and they are set to be executed. Well, in a democracy, we go by the majority rule, generally speaking, right? The representatives act in the interest of the constituents. So, you know, if you're against capital punishment, yet your society is enforcing capital punishment, it's a bit of a paradox, right? So I guess like that's part of the criticism of democracy. You hit them high, hit them high, hit them high, and I hit them low, hit them low, hit them low. Hang them high, I say. Kill them all. Let God sort them out. Anyway. And um, there are different... Um, Forms of freedom in a democracy, different um, definitions of freedom within a democracy. Now, there's such a concept of um, negative democracy, negative freedom, rather, negative freedom. Now, negative freedom is freedom from obstacle or restraint. If no one is actively preventing, you from doing something, then in that respect, you are free. Free from coercion. Most governments restrict the individual. Most governments restrict the individual in some respect. On the basis of that, people need protection. The belief that individual liberty is sacred as long as no one else is harmed. Yeah, it's like, in a negative freedom model, it's like we are free from coercion. We are free from restraint. No one's going to try to really sway you or interfere with your way of life. Negative freedom. And the criticism of negative freedom is, well, what counts as harm? Does it include harming others' feelings? Because it's like, um, in a negative freedom model, for the most part, it's like, you are free to be yourself as long as you're free to live an uncoerced life, as long as you're not interfering with others, you know? But what, what constitutes interfering with others? What constitutes harming others? You know, if you're free to do whatever you want without any interference, as long as you're not harming others, well, what constitutes harm? Does harming people's feelings count as Harm, you know, does it count as harming people's feelings? Like, you know, it's a negative, it's a negative freedom model that we live in. I have the right to live my life uncoerced and free to be who I am and express my opinion. And I think puppies are fucking gay. Puppies are gay and I hate gay puppies. You hurt that puppy's feeling. How dare you? <laughs> It's like, how dare you make fun of that gay puppy? You hurt his feelings. And it's like, what constitutes harm, right? And um, 
That's an interesting question. Very. Because it's like, it comes down to that whole idea of, um, you know, which we'll get into later, but it breaks down into that idea of like freedom of speech. And even beyond that, just the idea of what is the cause and effect? What is the interaction that we have to be aware of in regards to like our neighbors? You know what I mean? Is it harmful for me to play my music as loud as I want whenever I want? Right? This is a negative freedom model, free of coercion, as long as I'm not harming anybody, as long as I'm not interfering with anybody. Nobody has the goddamn right to tell me to turn down my radio. You know, do not coerce me. Do not poke your fucking finger into my life. If I want to play my radio loud, I'll play my radio loud. Well, actually, maybe you're harming your neighbor. Maybe you're infringing on their freedom. Interesting stuff. So, you know, that's negative freedom. And then there's the positive freedom model, which is very interesting. Um, and it really kind of, this balance of positive and negative, it really illustrates the difference. Because, you know, the positive freedom model is you are free in the positive sense if you actually exercise control over your own life and not free if you don't, even if you are not constrained in any way. Yeah. So if you exercise control over your own life and not, uh, and not free, yeah, if you exercise control over your own life, you're free. And if you don't exercise control over your own life, you're not free, even if you're even if you are not constrained from any of your activities. It's a bit of a mouthful, but you know what I'm saying? Like, you're only free if you exercise your freedom. You're only free if you exercise your freedom. And the example given here is like, for example, alcohol, alcoholism. I am an alcoholic, you know? I am personally three plus years sober today. <laughs> yeah. I'm a sober man, three plus years. And the example they gave in the book is alcoholism. So it's like, sure, in the negative, in the negative freedom model, you are free to drink, 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 drink yourself into oblivion. Who fucking cares? You're free. You're free to drink yourself to death. Well, in the positive freedom model, it's like, well, are you? Are you really free? If you are controlled by a substance, and you are drinking yourself to death, are you really free? Like, yes, it is your choice to drink yourself to death. You are free to that right, but are you really free? Maybe the government, maybe society should be able to interfere and, you know, coerce people from time to time in regards to their better interests. You know, like, I don't know, uh, you know, non- like, for example, you know, laws, you know, for example, perfect example, which would fall under that category is like um, closing time. You know, the bars in many, in, in a lot of Western society, bars close at like 2 a.m. Last call is like 2 a.m. Generally speaking, for the safety of the public, right? At 2 a.m., all bar establishments usually close. You can't get another drink served. You know, 
alcohol sales are usually limited too. I don't know everywhere, but like in Canada for the most part. Uh, well, I shouldn't even really speak about that, but just in that example, 2 a.m. last call. Well, who the fuck are you telling me when last call is? I should be able to drink whenever I fucking want. Is the restaurant open? Let me get a drink. Is the 7-Eleven open? Let me get a drink. What's this fucking 2 a.m. last call bullshit, you know? That's like positive freedom when it's like there's little addendums, little stipulations put in place to allegedly keep us free. Free from harm, but it's like you're restricting in a sense, are you not? And further criticism of positive freedom is freedom, positive freedom can be used to license all sorts of unjust coercion. The state might feel justified in forcing you to behave a certain way on the grounds that they're helping to increase your freedom. You know, that's true. Like, for example, TSA. What does that even stand for? Some people said it stands for, uh, you know, TSA. I don't even know what it stands for. But basically, like, you know, when you go to the airport, security, they rifle through your bags. They, they, they look you up and down. They peek into your ass crack. You know, they do everything but give you an enema. It's like they're up in your shit and all under the guise of freedom. We're here to serve your freedom from terrorism. But is it? So that's like the criticism of positive freedom. When it's like these, these little do-gooder laws and practices that are imposed to allegedly create freedom. But does it really? That's debatable. You know? It's truly debatable. Who, is, who isn't against security? Who doesn't want to live in a secure society, but at what cost? Interesting stuff. Now comes to a uh, idea that is very relevant in the performing arts. As a comedian, thespian extraordinaire, and as every little good political boy or girl or transgendered uh, halfling should know, We come to this monumental uh, concept in the world of political theory. Freedom of speech. <clears throat> so, freedom of speech. Freedom for the citizen. Freedom for the citizen to express a wide range of views and contribute to public debates without fear of censorship Yet freedom of expression in this context is never total freedom, unfortunately. Mill argued, and I don't even know who Mill was, like John Stuart Mill, some cuckolded fucking philosophical fucking pundit. I don't know. It's neither here nor there. But Mill argued that you should be free to express your views up to the point where you run the risk of harming others. Offending them is acceptable. God bless you, John Stuart Mill, or Mill, whoever you are. Um, so yes, you should be free to express your views up to the point where you run the risk of harming other people. Offending them is acceptable. 
He used a range of arguments to defend freedom of censorship. Here are two of them. So the first one is infallibility. You know, I'm not talking about fellatio. I'm talking about infallibility. The censure, the censor assumes that he or she can never be wrong. So the person censoring the other person assumes that they can never be wrong. Granted that the motivation for censorship is that the censored idea is false. So on this view, the censor runs the risk of preventing some true or potentially important ideas from getting a wider hearing. Yes, that's very important. Because it's like, when, when you have somebody censoring language, ideas, viewpoints, in a sense what they're claiming is that the censored party is false that you're wrong, that, you, that it poses some sort of threat. And that's a very, you know, omniscient, omnipotent, arrogant standpoint. Like to censor somebody's speech is to assume that you are infallible. You, can, you, you are not wrong. I have 110% um certification to censor you i'm gonna censor you because i'm right and you're wrong and that is the that is i don't know pretty scary stuff it's like how do you even argue that how do you know that and according to mill uh the censorship runs the risk of pretend of the censorship runs the risk of preventing some true or potentially important ideas from getting a wider hearing. So that's very dangerous. You know, it's like to step into that shoe of godliness and godhood and say that you are infallibly right. You know, you're infallible in your judgment is, you know, it's running the risk of silencing some very important ideas. And a second viewpoint in regards to um, the need for freedom of speech, according to Mill, unless views are regularly challenged, they are likely to be held as dead dogma. Challenges, challenges to the belief holder to clarify and defend their beliefs, you know, are necessary, you know? I added that last part about being necessary. I don't know if it's necessary, but, you know, challenges to the belief holder. It challenges the belief holder to clarify and defend their beliefs, you know. So, yes, if that's part of the importance of freedom of speech, it challenges the belief holder to clarify and defend their beliefs. Otherwise, it's just held as dead dogma, you know. Do as I say, not as I do. Stay off the lawn. Why stay off the lawn? Through the dawn of time, people have been walking on the grass. Why do I have to stay on the, off the lawn? Sun, sun, everywhere sun. Taking up the space and blowing my mind. Don't do this, don't do that. Can't you read the sun? 
Sign, sign everywhere. Sign, yo, hey, you get off my cloud. You don't know me. You don't know my style. Back the fuck up off me, punk. You know? <laughs> you got to challenge these beliefs. You know? You got to challenge people to be aware of what they're saying and to clarify what they're saying to get a greater depth of understanding. I mean, ideally, ideally, isn't that, isn't that what, you know, a rational person would want? Some understanding and meaning in their belief system? Or do you just want to arbitrarily believe a lie? Did you do what they told you? Fuck you, motherfucker! Yeah, I listen to Rage Against the Machine. Pump that shit every time I work out. I don't believe in every little goddamn thing they say, but, you know, it's that idea. Did you do what they told you? Did you do what they told you? All right. Now, 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 there's always criticism. <clears throat> this is the criticism of Mill on free speech. Not always a question of truth. It is not always a question of truth. Censorship, censoring, how to make a pipe bomb, for example, isn't a matter of information not being true, but rather than it's dangerous. So censorship isn't always about truth. It can be a matter of um, danger, protection for society. Yeah, like if you're censoring somebody from posting and speaking and, you know, discussing how to make a pipe bomb online, it's not that we're censoring you because you're false. We're not censoring you because the information is untrue. We're censoring that because it's dangerous. You know, that's a very good criticism. You know, it's, it's not always about just trying to silence the truth. It's about protection. In certain circumstances, I could agree to that, partially. Um, also, what about the right to freedom of speech? You know, the right to freedom of speech. What about that? Mill's views purport to show society benefits from free speech, even when the views expressed are false. But what about the claim that freedom of speech is a right? Yeah, those points that I gave that, um, well, that Mills gave, rather. The points that Mills made were like, um, you know, freedom of speech um, can only be, I mean, there's, first of all, um, a person looking to censor somebody must be infallible. Otherwise, they're preventing, you know, important ideas and expression from being heard. And number two, freedom of speech um, is beneficial because it's like it challenges dead dogma. It challenges the belief holder to clarify and defend their belief system. You know? Those are great, but those are, those are like, you know, benefits and theories of why Freedom of speech is important. But what about the right to freedom of speech? Do we have an inherent right to the freedom of speech? 
You know, is it a right that I have that under no circumstance can my freedom of speech ever be silenced? Like, what about that debate? Interesting stuff, you know? Can't say I know so much about the whole legislative human rights bureaucracy, but um, that's very much an interesting question. Is it a right? Is freedom of speech a right? You know? Do we have the right to say whatever we want, whenever we want, to whoever we want, regardless of the consequences? Do we have that right? And the fourth discussion, major concept in regards to political theory. The fourth concept on political theory. Removing freedom, punishment, punishment. Now, there's several categories for the reasons of punishment. Punishment as retribution. Those who intentionally break the law deserve the punishment they get, regardless whether there are any beneficial consequences for the individuals concerned or for society. An eye for an eye is that theory basically. Well, the criticism of punishment as retribution is that it appeals to baser feelings. It ignores effects, effects of punishment on the criminal and society. You know, it's like, who cares if a person could become reformed? Who cares if, um, if, if imprisoning a person, regardless of the consequences. Maybe it's a arbitrary trumped up charge. Maybe it's an unclear um, conviction. All that stuff. Regardless of anything, we punish for retribution. An eye for an eye. Fuck it. We are the judge, the jury, the executioner. We punish. We want some retribution. You know, that's a criticism. It's like, you don't even care that there's certain effects that can happen on the individual, on society, when we just go for an eye for an eye? What did Mahatma Gandhi say? An eye for an eye, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. Oh, somebody get me a bowl of spaghetti. Oh, I'm so hungry. Ah, oh, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. <laughs> you know, Gandhi didn't believe in that hogwash. You know, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. What the hell do we learn from anything? If we're just going for retribution, you know? Some believe the action of punishment is moral in itself only if it brings forth beneficial consequences, right? Some believe punishment is, punishment if morally justified is right regardless of the consequences. Yeah, so like... There's a lot of criticism in terms of morality, you know. Um, if it brings forth beneficial consequences, then it is moral. Well, no, no, no. It's moral regardless of the consequences. People have to pay for their crimes, an eye for an eye. All depends on the perspective. Then we come to um, the idea of deterrence. In regards to punishment, a common justification for punishment 
is that it discourages lawbreaking, you know? You see somebody break a window and get fucking shot in the back by a cop, you might think twice about breaking a window. Well, the criticism of that is punishing the innocent doesn't work, right? You know, if you... uh... Oh, rather, um, I kind of combined those two criticisms. Um, The first criticism, rather, is, you know, deterrence punishes the innocent, you know? Um, There's many far-reaching, you know, tentacles of that argument, but, like, to punish the innocent through deterrence is, like, I don't know, sometimes people are wrongly, wrongfully convicted. Sometimes people are made an example of, you know, like uh, if we want to make an example that, you know, this certain crime should never be done, then we're going to punish this person to a trumped up, full, inflated extent of the law. That way, for henceforth, people won't do this type of crime because we said so. It's like you're punishing the innocent at that point, you know? It's like you're making an example of people, like a scapegoat, so to speak. And it also doesn't work. I mean, come on. Criminals are criminals, you know? We have far-reaching penalties for the crimes that are committed in this society. You know, arguably the farthest being, in some courts, capital punishment. You know, punishment by death, that still doesn't deter some criminals, right? So the ideal, the idea of deterrence pretty much doesn't work in some regard to some criticism, you know? I don't know how I personally feel about it, but, um, you know, there's definitely an argument for that. It doesn't work. Um, another facet in regards to punishment, is protecting society. Punishment emphasizes the need to protect society from people who have a tendency to break the law. You know, we need to punish people in order to protect society. Pretty straightforward. Well, criticism of that is, it's only relevant for some crimes. You know? Like, for example... The example that they gave in the book was like, okay, somebody rapes somebody and you punish them with a lengthy prison sentence. Arguably, some of these people should be just locked up and have the key thrown away. These are the type of people that cannot be in society. Yeah, it protects society. But what about, in the example they gave, like, you have a wife. She has suffered many years of physical and mental abuse from a husband. One night she just snaps, you know, grabs the butter knife, stabs the motherfucker to death. To lock her up indefinitely in a situation like that, you know, does that really protect society? To lock away, to lock her up and throw away the key? You know, she committed, you know, a sin amongst sins, you know, she killed, she killed somebody, but under very 
particular circumstances? And does that truly protect society? Is that woman a threat to society? Debatable. So, you know. But I mean, that theory on punishment is a pretty hard theory to debate. I mean, generally speaking, criminals do have to be punished to protect society. You know, if you don't punish a a criminal in any sense, what chance of, of it is that they're going to reform themselves? You know, why would a criminal reform themselves if there is no punishment? So obviously there needs to be some punishment to protect society. That's my opinion. And the last, uh, I guess, tentacle of the punishment uh, web is reform. Further justification for punishment, punishing those who break the law is the punishment's tendency to reform the wrongdoers, right? So the idea being, if we punish people, it will reform them, you know? All right, you killed somebody, in you go, into the fucking, fucking clink, into the bin, you know, you're being punished, you killed somebody. Well, the criticism of that is, it's only relevant for some criminals, you know? Some criminals are just truly beyond reform, you know? Serial rapists, murderers, you know, pathological swindlers, hustlers, you know, manipulating con men. A lot of these people are just beyond reform. And another criticism is, basically put, punishment doesn't, 100% of the time, work. You know, we have a wide-ranging set of punishments. There's even torture in some countries, right? Then you got criminal, or then you got, uh, what is it? Capital punishment. Capital punishment doesn't even deter people from committing some of the most heinous crimes out there. So, I mean, it's a criticism. It's pretty weak. I mean, you like I believe, and like I said, like generally speaking, we need to... a form of punishment in order to protect society, right? Obviously that we we need protection in society, right? So, but, you know, punishment, it's a a very interesting topic because it, it brings forth a lot of, you know, questions on human nature, you know? Like, what are, what are we seeking to do in society? Are we seeking to just, you know, seek a base form of retribution, an eye for an eye? You know, are we seeking to protect society from the ills of criminals? Are we looking to reform these criminals in order to reintegrate them into society? Are we a more advanced spiritual society in some sense? Versus just the baser, you know, fucking biblical times of just pure retribution. An eye for an eye. 
interesting stuff. And the last concept covered on the political theory concept base. The last concept being, and very importantly in this day and age, pandemic 2020, civil disobedience. You know, we're in this time of anti-racism protests, a lot of um, cop brutality protests, a lot of different, you know, civil disobedience going on globally in this time of pandemic 2020. So civil disobedience is a very poignant, important discussion in regards to political theory. Not that I would really know, like I told you, like a, you know, fucking reformed alcoholic fucking nightclub drunk comic, you know. I considered huffing paint once just to get high, you know, like, I'm not going to sit here on some moral level of political theory, but, you know, I do have eyes, you know, I could read things from time to time. Anyway, here we go. Civil disobedience. Could it ever be morally acceptable to break the law? Could it? The tradition of civil disobedience is one of non-violence. Public law-breaking designed to bring attention to unjust laws or government policies. Those who act within the tradition of civil disobedience do not break the law simply for personal gain. They do it to draw attention to an unjust law or morally objectionable government policy and to maximize publicity for their cause. Yes, in the tradition of meaningful civil disobedience, it is not merely done for personal gain. It is a non-violent form of protest to draw attention to an unjust law in the eyes of the civil disobedientators. So the criticism, criticism of the criticism of fuck you, staring at me like I can't fuck up every once in a while. (laughs) Criticism of uh, civil disobedience. I love you. All right, it's undemocratic. If a law is voted on and passed democratically then to break the law and protest against it seems against the spirit of democracy. Yes, these laws are voted upon and passed by a seemingly democratic society. Seems kind of against the spirit of it to protest these laws if they've been chosen by the people. To counter that, Civil disobedience is a technique for getting the majority of their representatives to reconsider their position on a particular issue rather than the undemocratic way of getting law or policy changed. Yeah. So that's the flip side, you know. People might say that it's uh, undemocratic to protest and break these laws that have been voted on by the society, well, the argument, counter-argument is, well, no, no, like, 
it's a method, it's a technique to bring awareness to an issue and, you know, ask the society to reconsider their views on certain issues in a nonviolent way, right? Also, civil disobedience can be criticized as a slippery slope. <laughs> you know, you just slip right the fuck out, right? Civil disobedience can be criticized as a slippery slope into lawlessness, you know? The argument being, if you take a step in one direction, <laughs> your momentum might build to the point where you cannot stop. Bring forth, and that can bring forth undesirable results. But why can't we dig our heels in and stop? That's interesting. So it's like, you know, some people say, oh, yeah, if we dissent into this um, anarchy where we're breaking the laws and protesting, where's the line? Where do we stop? What are we endorsing here? You know, civil disobedience, lawlessness. What kind of animal warfare is this? Aren't we better than this? What will this mean in the, in the eyes of a crumbling society? Well, it's like, well, just because things are inflamed and... There's a lot of, you know, unsightly attention being drawn to a situation. Who the hell really likes to see people upset, marching, chanting? Even if it's nonviolent, it is unpleasant, right? But what's to say that we can't grind our heels down, you know? Learn a lesson from the situation and move forward in an even more democratic manner. You know, why can't we learn from this situation to grow even more democratically, right? To participate more collectively in society, to, you know, try to come to some sort of terms for everybody. Something that benefits all, right? Democracy. Furthermore, if someone is willing to be punished by the state for drawing attention to what they believe to be an unjust law, this shows that they are committed to the general position that laws should be just and that just laws should be respected. This is very different from breaking the law for personal gain. Yeah, you know... If somebody is willing to be punished by a law, punished by law in a society by, you know, breaking a law, that in a sense reinforces their commitment to the overall law of their society, to the democratic process of the society. For example, one of the most beautiful and poignant examples, love him or hate him, he was controversial, but a very important figure, Muhammad Ali. You know, protested the Vietnam War and his conscription. He wasn't just going to be sent off to some foreign land to shoot people he doesn't even know and be embroiled in some political um, war that was false to begin with. You know, Gulf of Tonkin, I believe, right? Why would he 
Why would he? Why wouldn't he protest? Are you kidding me? You want me to go kill somebody I've never even met for no fucking reason because you're my government and that's the democrat, the seemingly democratic? No, I respect myself. I respect others. I respect the law of this land. You know. I turn myself over to the law. I will not do as you say. Make your decision. And he suffered for it. You know, he was imprisoned. He he lost a lot of his, um, some of his best money-making years. Some of his best athletic years were, you know, un- unjustly taken from him for standing up for, you know, for bringing light, bringing peaceful civil disobedience to a very, on one hand, complex, but on the other hand, a very obvious situation. Obviously, war is not the answer. Obviously. And aside from that, it was a political boondoggle, filibustering, trumped up facade. It was, all, it was all based on a lie to begin with. So, you know, that's, that's the power of civil disobedience, you know? It, you know, it does run the risk of, you know, promoting a sense of lawlessness, you know, a certain, a certain lack of respect for the law. But it also reinforces that, hey, like, we abide by these laws, we will respect these laws, but on some level, these laws have to respect us, or we can't abide to them. Everybody has that right in a democracy, you know? And to civilly protest, to bring attention to your you know, fellow representatives in a, in a democracy to, to peacefully bring attention to a matter, to civilly, to be civilly disobedient, peacefully, to bring attention. It's not just to usurp power and overthrow the forces that be, or the powers that be. It's to bring forth these ideas and hope that we can have a greater dialogue as a people on these matters. Civil disobedience, very important and relevant in this time of pandemic, 2020 anti-racism protests. No clear answer, but there's also a lot of heart and common sense that can be derived from it. And, you know, I think the greater point being democracy, civil justice, for all. All. So um, those are the political, um, some of the major political concepts in regards to political theory. Equality. Um, democracy. Punishment. Freedom of speech. Civil disobedience. And, uh, you know, I think that's all of them. Let me just double check. Yeah.
Yeah, nailed it, nailed it. Yeah, that's like freedom, equality, um, punishment, civil disobedience, and uh, democracy. <laughs> Leave it up to me to lose the momentum. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. Sometimes doing a podcast is like a race. You know, once you see that red tape, you're like, oh, give me the. F <laughs> but yeah, that's a major, major, um, important food for thought as a person in the 21st century. That's that's major thought for a person you know in any time period you know it governs our society do hit me up jr.thepodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions queries on or qualms in regards to political theory love to talk with you hit me up jr.thepodcast at gmail.com and you know going forward i'm just gonna you know Keep uh, my mind fertile for information, thought, and, uh, you know, hopefulness. I'm going to enjoy the summer weather. And, um, you know, I wish all the best to you and yours during this time. And uh, uh, how do I get out of this? Um <laughs> Call me. It's your old chuckle buddy. Guess who? Jonathan James Ramtran. Reporting live for duty on this magnificent June 24th in the year of our Lord, 2020. Yeah. Um, authenticity. Hard work. Hopefulness. Gotta keep that in the mind and the heart and the stomach going forward. Pandemic 2020. Political concepts, political theory, you know, it's a doozy. Hit me up, jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. You got questions, you got queries, you got qualms. jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. I'm available on iTunes. I'm available on Spotify. I'm available on YouTube. You can catch me on my website, jonathan-ramcharan.com. Connect with me on all those platforms, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please do tell a friend. Help my black ass out for crying out loud, you know? I'm trying to get my uh trying to get my sack out there into the atmosphere, folks, you know? So do share me with a friend. Till next time, folks. You live it, you love it, you recognize it, you realize it. Aight. Peace.